Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA's section on dispute resolution, where we have a conversation with members of the dispute resolution and prevention community about topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be talking with Professor Dwight Golan about the section on dispute resolutions upcoming Mediation Institute on November 15th and 16th at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, Texas. Professor Golan is a professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston, where he specializes in dispute resolution and negotiation. And he's also the keynote speaker for the upcoming Mediation Institute. Welcome and thank you for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. So first and foremost, we're here to talk about the upcoming Institute in Houston, um, which is happening about a month from today. But we're going to um, first, I think, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in um, mediation and became a professor uh, teaching dispute resolution. I think I have a bit of a checkered background in the sense that I spent the first dozen years or more um, as a litigator. I was in private practice, then I worked for the state attorney general's office, both in public protection affirmative, and I supervised the defense of the uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts is also a special criminal prosecutor. I began teaching and also realized, I think the last thing I did before I started teaching was a month long trial. And in one sense, it was a very worthwhile case against a medical lab that had misread women's pap smears, um, leading to people getting cancer without knowing it. Um, but I remember thinking that it was a really inefficient way to get what we wanted, which was the lab to stop doing this kind of work. Um, and about the same time, I became aware there was this other process called mediation. I began teaching it. I've been teaching it for 25 years, but I've also mediated hundreds of civil cases by now um, in almost every area except not divorce and not collective bargaining. But um, that's led in turn to doing videos, which I hope we're going to show at the Institute of um, mediators really from now from four continents um, doing their work um, and encountering the kind of challenges we encounter. Absolutely. And that's a, a great way to segue into discussion of your uh, keynote speech. Um, so you're the keynote speaker, as we mentioned, um, at the upcoming Institute. And I believe you, you said that the focus of that speech is um, a series of videos um, kind of outlining different mediation techniques and processes. So would you mind talking a little bit about the, the background of your speech and yeah. the topics? The different videos will certainly happen at the Institute and they're sort of key to the various topics that they're gonna cover. Um, at the keynote, I see this, this Institute as a way to look at sort of deeper issues that sort of we don't cover in a typical 40-hour course or you don't see in a typical, well, actually this you would see in a typical mediation, but we don't talk about it very much. Um, I became aware that despite, despite the value of what we call interest-based bargaining, which is um, trying to find options other than pure a dollar for you is a dollar away from me, pure money, um, for most disputants, settling means accepting some loss. And the loss is compared to what they hoped for, maybe compared to their prior state of health or where their business was or where their marriage had been. And so, and we sort of ignore that in talking about the positive aspects of mediation and yet, and it's a rare, real important part. I think 
loss is an extraordinarily difficult issue in mediation um, because the feelings it genders and the way it distorts decision making is almost more than anything else, any other of the sort of uh, cognitive, we call them, forces that drive human decision making. Also, it comes up at, at really unfortunate times in the mediation, typically toward the end of the day when everyone's tired and um, people really don't want to talk about feelings anymore. Um, and then often the way people who have, who are feeling lost behave, um, it struck me at one point, it was a lot like like patients facing a terminal illness, um, the famous uh, stages of grieving of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Um, they really behave in what you would think of as irrational ways, and some of the ways they behave, unfortunately, resemble what semi-ethical, un-adversarial bargainers use, the tricks, we call them, except in this case, they're not tricks, they're just sort of reactions to what they're feeling. So I think we mediators, one of those valuable things we do, and something that litigators find really hard to do, is to um, to deal with these feelings and sort of the, the crazy actions that suddenly erupt at four or five or six p.m. in a in a mediation. Um, I'll be explaining more about how this happens. I will give some video examples, um, and then I think we have to talk about what we do about it as mediators, because I think it's the most most helpful thing I think we might be able to do is, uh, I sometimes call it holding a funeral, if you will, for um, the death of a claim or the death of a defense that, had, that, that a litigant had been using really to avoid dealing with loss until they're in the mediation and there's no more time to avoid compromising. Um, it's a very powerful kind of thing. It's very hard for litigators to do. Frankly, it's not all that easy for us former lawyers, uh, former litigators to do, but but I'm going to argue I think we have to learn it and be sensitive to it. Absolutely. And I personally, I find it interesting that you have never, you said earlier that you've never dealt with, you know, divorce or um, family mediation, really. And those are some of the crucial areas where I think people tend to think that you know, emotions and kind of that... Yes. Um, yeah, those play a big role, but I, I think well, as you said. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is, and where you see people talk about it in writing, that's where it first was, was sort of noted. And the references to, gee, this is an awful lot like what I've been reading about for terminally ill patients. Um, where I see it, because I don't do that kind of case, first was in employment cases. Right, because right. employment, when you lose your job, it attacks your whole sense of identity. And that's one of the core things about being a human being and, and, and releases sort of the most powerful emotions. But then I've also seen it in what you would think of as a kind of a routine fight over what's called stock dilution in a corporation. Somebody not getting the, as much percentage shares as they thought they should get. But that was just a screen for tangled feelings, I guess I'll say. I'm dealing now with complex disputes between heirs to two family fortunes, and I'm seeing the same thing. So you could say that's a kind of a divorce because it's inside a family, but, um, but no, it, it happens, I won't say in every aspect of mediation, but a great deal more than the core area you immediately think of, which is divorce. I, I think that's one of the great benefits of um, programs like the Institute is where you can go and talk to other practitioners and learn 
something that you may not have even realized is applicable to your particular area of practice. I think that's very valuable. Well, you know, one thing that struck me is that mediation as compared to practicing law is kind of a, a lonely profession. Um, I'm usually, almost always, the only mediator in the room. Right. There'll often be two or three lawyers on one side <laughs> and a lawyer and client on the other side. But, um, but if you're doing commercial mediation and you're charging for your time, people's attitude is generally, why do I need two of you? <laughs> so you don't see other mediators. And the first time I really got a chance to talk to people who do the kind of work I do and confront the issues I do, was actually when I volunteered as a, as a um, critiquer commentator, I guess, at uh, one of these uh, institutes. I think it was in Boston now, but this one is in Houston, of course. Well, so let's get into a little bit more about this upcoming institute itself. So my understanding is that it's, it's over the course of two days. It's November 15th and 16th, and it's kind of broken up into different sections called plenaries. And they each have kind of their own topic. And I think a lot of them are tied into sort of the topics of emotions and, and grieving that, that you spoke of briefly earlier. Um, so if you don't mind, can we go through those different kind of plenary topics and kind of talk about the-, the I guess I'll say, I think where they, where they derive these topics is that the American Bar Association had a task force that asked for opinions of users of mediation, mostly lawyers, but some clients, and what it is they valued. They also did empirical, or collected the empirical studies of mediation about what made mediators effective or not so effective. And the results of those kind of informed what areas they were gonna focus on. So each one is kind of keyed to, a, to an area that the empirical work may or may not tell us about, I guess I should say. The first one is, um, pure emotions. I guess apart from the, the obvious, the obvious, the one I've already talked about of loss, um, dealing with strong feelings is, is sort of the, the water, I think, in which we mediators swim. Sometimes it's obvious, like in the divorce cases, but in the kind of commercial cases that I do, more often it's hidden. I mean, people admit to being angry with the other side and there's duplicity and there this and that and the other, uh, but they'll only admit to certain what I call strong emotions or emotions that help their case, such as they're making a claim for emotional distress. Everything else is kind of hidden. Um, and they arrive with what I call their game face on. Right. And a lot of it is trying to, trying to draw out the emotion that you have a feeling is motivating what are allegedly logical decisions, but don't seem that way. So I think a lot of what we do is to try to diagnose what is going on under the surface, try to deal with it. I think, well, I know because I've just been sending them over this afternoon that um, they're assembling some fairly, um, some fairly provocative uh, videos of, of people in mediation being emotional. And that sets us up to talk about what do you do with someone when you really tap into that. And I think the, that plenary is followed by some breakout discussions um, where you can meet and discuss the things you learned in the plenary session um, in smaller in smaller groups with other practitioners. Well, it's a chance to yeah talk to your fellow practitioner, and also of course they have recruited volunteer um, experts um, to kind of lead discussions so that they stay focused and kind of on point. 
I'll say the, the next thing that I know they're focused on is the crucial question of how we mediators build trust. Um, it's always amazing to me how quickly people make decisions about whether they can trust mediators. When Steve Goldberg of Northwestern Law School and Margaret Shaw did a study of what sort of sophisticated commercial litigators valued in mediators, in successful mediators, um, it, you might have thought it was, you know, great piercing intellect and so forth, but the absolute first thing cited most often was, seems like he really, or she really wants to help us, seems really committed, seems to be open, and so on, which was all going to whether you trust the mediator and you feel an emotional connection with them. And it sort of validated the idea that our first almost essential job is to build some trust, and actually with both sides who are in a situation in which usually they don't trust each other at all. I often say to, to people that I don't get any smarter when I'm mediating. I don't become any wiser. But the one thing is, if I'm trusted and I'm seen as neutral, I'm not subject to the kind of what we call reactive devaluation, that, that just immediate tendency to assume the worst about someone you see as your enemy and to assume the worst about their motivations. Um, it's something we have to do and we have to do it with people we've never met before who are under stress and fighting with each other. Um, it is kind of amazing to me that anything actually gets done. But you know, five or six hours in, you've, you've built up hopefully enough of a, of a basis of connection and trust that you can tell them things, deliver bad news, that's usually what you're doing, um, tell them things they probably didn't wish to hear, things their lawyer didn't wish to say sometimes, and yet not lose that sense that, well, he or she is still working for me. They, they deal with difficult people on the other side, but they're sort of on my side. Right. And, and I think that idea of, as the mediator building trust among the, the parties kind of ties into the second plenary that is, um, I think, on Friday afternoon. And that's talking about eliciting dispute and suggestions and, and, and uh, caucusing. And I think building that kind of trust with the disputants is, um, is key to kind of eliciting those suggestions. Yeah. I am less enthusiastic about the eliciting suggestions aspect of the process. Not because I don't, it's wonderful when it happens. I have to say most of the time, by the time I really reach people, they have gotten into a deep fight. Um, they've sued each other in America and pretty much the rest of the world. Suing someone generally means you're not going to have a connection with them if you can get out of it. Sometimes you can't because it's uh, too hard to get divorced, so to speak, even in commercial situations. Um, there are a lot of barriers that make it unusually hard, harder, I think, than we professors like to say, to get people talking truly creatively. So I hope at the meeting that this, this is to talk about what those barriers are, what are some strategies for getting over them, how to deal with it, especially in the context of single day mediations, where if you spend eight hours trying to construct an imaginative solution and you fail it at 5 p.m., you're probably not gonna get a chance to spend another eight hours doing non-creative work. So there are some real challenges. Um, that said, um, I did a survey and I found that probably uh, almost by two to one, in cases where parties had had a relationship, didn't necessarily keep the relationship, but there was something in the deal, something imaginative, something beyond 
just money and confidentiality, um, probably about two thirds of the time versus one third were pure um, cash and uh, confidentiality sort of settlement. So it's definitely worth focusing on. And sometimes I think we underestimate the kind of challenges that um, we're going to have to be talking about. Absolutely. And I think moving on, moving on in the schedule, I think that the Friday afternoon portion is on a topic I, I don't see as much in mediation as I do in kind of the practice of law, and that's um, negotiating and mediating effectively and ethically. I, I've heard a lot of talk about um, attorney ethics, but um, not, not so often do we hear about um, model rules of professional conduct for mediators. Well, that's because there aren't, well, individual courts, for example, might have rules that apply to the mediators who are sort of certified or panel members in that right. court. But they're generally, and, and some states, well, some court systems license, generally speaking, mediation is not a licensed profession in the sense that being a lawyer or for that matter, a plumber is. Mm -hmm. And there aren't rules that apply. There are model standards. The problem with the model standards as, as wonderful as they are, is that they're general principles. And a lot of the time, there's no problem, you know, staying within them. Sometimes you get into situations where it's impossible to satisfy two sets of standards completely. Um, they, there just isn't any, any solution or path where you can, for example, if, if someone seems to be really semi-incompetent in a mediation and feel a pull toward maintaining a decent process, um, you might want to try to help them, but then again, you're supposed to be impartial. Um, that kind of tension between the various standards sort of comes out if you talk about specific situations. Um, there are situations where I've seen people who've been meeting in employment cases, and then it turns out that the employee doesn't have a social security number because he's an illegal alien and their various attempts to kind of, you know, keep that out of the, the crosshairs of the U.S. government. And one can imagine the tension between that and, and um, you know, trying to get a, get a solution and respect confidentiality. Anyway, they'll be talking about those kinds of situations which I think arise in actual practice. And I think the Saturday morning uh, plenary also deals with something somewhat of an ethical issue in that um, sometimes mediators can get reach this line of being directive or um, um, over. Yeah, I think I think the best way is overly directive and that kind of pushes up against that ethical line in some ways and that plenary deals with um, pressing and slash directive mediator well, actions. The problem, the problem is that most lawyers, if they have a complaint about mediators, is that they don't press us hard enough. Hmm. They're looking for the mediator, essentially, to take over some of that, that um, quote, bringing the client to reality, unquote. Um, as it happens, and I think I might be in the minority here, I just published an article in Dispute Resolution Magazine arguing that evaluation is a useful technique in mediation, but it is the surgery of mediation. And the problem is, as with most surgery, if you do it too often, or you're not well trained in it, you can do a lot of damage. Right. And I think these kind of pressing and directive actions um, 
often we don't train people. You know, we sort of vaguely tell them to be, uh, to be facilitative and then they get into a situation where either they can't get anywhere being purely facilitative, but they don't really know how to do, um, to make, to sort of do evaluative reality testing or make suggestions, et cetera, without impairing the appearance of impartiality, without alienating clients. It's a tightrope. I think it's a tightrope for me that's worth walking, but I don't, I don't underestimate the, um, the tightrope aspects of it, I guess I should say. Right. And I think like any skill of that nature, it's learning to do it with precision. And I think, you know, it's, it's difficult to get training in that area. And it's something you can learn by experience predominantly, I think. Right. I don't think you're going to hear much about it in your typical 40 hour training. So this is hopefully going to be a chance for people who've done this and come up against this to talk about how to do it in ways that are consistent with the kind of overall facilitative approach we want. So I know we have to, you have to get going soon and the next um, class soon, yes. <laughs> um, briefly, um, there is also a, a, um, a plenary on international mediation. Um, I wanted to let the listeners know about that, but we're going to have Anna sampled on the podcast in the near future and she's going to talk more specifically about that. Um, and recognizing that you're almost out of time, um, there is the last plenary, I think, is mediation marketing. Um, if you have a few words to say about that. Oh, boy. I suppose that's the thing I'm personally least confident on, except it's the obvious first question that people have. Um, we have a plentiful supply of mediators. Um, so how do you get to the point where you have clientele? Right. I tell people that people mediate with someone they feel some connection with. And it doesn't have to be much of a connection. It could be you went to the same college or you come from the same town or they saw you at the soccer league. It's, a, it's amazing what you would think of as fairly minor connections make you real as a public or trustworthy in a way that just a name and a resume isn't. To the extent people have any special expertise that isn't simply like everybody else, that can be the reason why someone chooses you. Um, and it does take affirmative work. And I do tell people to, um, you know, not to give up their day job, to view it as a paid hobby, and then they'll be delighted when they're paid and when the, uh, the cases come in. But I'm not the expert on this. I think the, the good news is there actually will be experts there um, to talk about um, what has succeeded and some techniques for doing it. And, and I have heard from several people that uh, building that client base and the kind of logistics of uh, starting out an ADR practice is one of the most difficult parts of it. Uh, it is. It's easier to become skilled than it is to become um, known to clients on both sides who will hire you, or probably lawyers on both sides. If that, what you want to do is be, be hired for compensated mediation as opposed to what is very valuable, which is volunteering your time. And I know you have to get going. And so I just want to say thank you for taking the time. Um, I, I want to plug the kind of logistics of the Institute briefly. Um, again, it's being held at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, Texas, beginning Friday, November 15th. Registration begins at 9 a.m. and it goes until the following evening, Saturday, September 16th. 
And listeners, you can register by going to ambar, ambar.org backslash MED 2019. And that will have a lot more information, including sponsors um, and more details about the different programs. And you can sign up and get all that information there. Um, Professor Golan, I'd like to thank you again for being so generous with your time and giving us the great description of the different events at the Institute. I'm sure a lot of listeners are looking forward to attending uh, after hearing you speak about it. Well, I don't know, but I hope to see them and, and it should be an interesting discussion. Thank you. And thank you again to all our listeners for tuning into Resolutions and we'll talk to you soon.